This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Mission Show, and salut Babette. Tonight's show takes us to several conferences and shows you what exciting times we're living in. The Smart Energy Conference was in Sydney, and it took place at the Conference Centre in Darling Harbour. I get overwhelmed at these conferences. There are so many people, mostly men, all sort of selling things, and there's a huge room full of people with every kind of gadget for smart energy that, of course, a lot of it goes over my head, so I wander around there. But I go to the talks, and a lot of them are a lot more about the policy change and the cultural change and the economic change that we are seeing happen and that we need to happen a bit more, a bit faster. John Grimes is the CEO of the Smart Energy Council and he came out fighting with these words. There is an alliance of countries, the powering past coal alliance, that is, that is committed to no coal in the OECD by 2030 and no coal in the rest of the world by 2050. 80 countries have signed on to that, to that, including the United Kingdom, who will be coal-free by 2025. All that fantastic sunshine they have in the UK, you see. That's why they outdo <laughs> us in the amount of solar PV they have. Canada, France, Mexico, New Zealand. Now, what's Australia's reaction? Well, at the last COP meeting in December last year, we were the only nation to join with the United States at a pro-coal event at COP24. We folks, Australia is a global pariah when it comes to climate change action. You know, when they talk about, you know, in geopolitical terms, the axis of evil, they talk about North Korea, Libya, and those places. We are the top of the list when it comes to climate inaction. I actually want a government that is going to restore our international standing that's going to use our, our power as a middle power to cajole and to influence and to argue and to bring up commitments from other, from other countries. We can play that, that leadership role. We have in the past and we must again. One of the speakers who gave a rousing talk to the smart energy industry there was Christine Milne. I caught up with her later and she gave me a lovely interview and it was so nice to see that she's working now on the international stage and has lots of news to tell us. I'm very delighted to find Christine Mill again at the Smart Energy Conference. They love her here. She's their um, mascot, I think. And uh, it's uh, industries here. Look, the energy industries here, all sorts of people selling and talking and thinking about the industry. And she just gave them an absolute blast, the industry. She galvanised them with her talk this morning. And it was very forthright. And so I'm so delighted, Christine, that you're still in action. You're the Greens uh, International Ambassador now, having been um, former leader of the Greens in our, our uh, Australian Parliament. But could you please tell us uh, in a simplified form what you said to the industry? What, why, why do you think... The, I've always thought the industry was a bit sort of reticent and a bit sitting on their hands as far as taking political action goes. What, do you, what, what did you want to tell them? 
Well, when I first started in politics, um, when we talked about the environment and global warming, we talked about renewable energy as a solution. So it was always in the same frame, environment, climate, renewable energy. Then over the years, the general discussion of environment was dropped and people just talked about climate change and renewables being a solution. But I've noticed in the last five years, as renewable energy has become really big business, hugely successful, what we have seen is the renewable energy sector has abandoned any discussion of global warming. It just talks about industry, industry expansion, what the industry needs. And by doing that, by decoupling renewable energy from climate ambition, it has meant that the big corporate players who've moved into the renewables, many of them still have portfolios of at least 50 or 70% fossil fuels, are very happy to see the transition slow down and are very happy to see gas written back in as some sort of solution to the climate crisis and made as some kind of hybrid with renewables and it's just not on and I wanted to say to the sector every single time you sit there and talk and use the language of the fossil fuel sector like blue hydrogen it is actually black hydrogen it is made from gas methane going to atmosphere we do not want black hydrogen and the only reason they call it blue is because people think of nice crisp cool clear blue water it's black But also, every time you slow down and talk about ambition and start talking about carbon neutral or net carbon zero, what you're saying is you can balance out the renewable energy, which is zero carbon, with fossil fuels. Well, you can't. And it's actually leading to a high level of complacency. And that's what I wanted to say to the industry. You have to recouple with climate ambition. When you do that, you understand that the the age of any fossil fuels is over. No more coal, no gas, no black hydrogen. Hydrogen's a terrific transport fuel, but only if it comes from electrolysis of water, which is powered by renewable energy. That's green hydrogen, that's good hydrogen, but this black stuff is just more of a major export uh, rescue package, if you like, for Northwest Shelf Gas. I, I imagine some of those people were quite gobsmacked by that because I actually follow the news a lot and I care about climate change, but I hadn't picked up that word net as a specially weasel word. Can you explain what net zero carbon means? Like, why take out the net? Well, if you just talk about zero emissions, it means you're saying zero fossil fuel emissions to atmosphere, full stop. None. That means there is no role for gas with carbon capture and storage. There is no role for gas combined with plantation forestry in northwest Western Australia, which you then burn, which you then bury with carbon capture and storage. It makes it very clear that zero emissions means zero fossil fuels. If you add the word net then you are suggesting there is a balance between fossil fuels and renewable energy. Fossil fuels with offsets or carbon capture and storage and renewable energy, and that is where the weasel words set in. Plantations, uh, vegetation cannot offset 
fossil fuel emissions. They all try and say, oh, look, we're going to have this coal mine, we're going to have this new gas, but we're going to plant a plantation over here and it'll all be all right. Well, it won't. And the reason for that is that oil, gas and coal have been stored in the earth for millions of years where they are effectively inactive. It's just buried there. When you extract them, that fossil fuel goes straight to atmosphere. Carbon dioxide and methane go straight to atmosphere and they add. They are additional to the active carbon cycle. Now, the active carbon cycle is basically vegetation, terrestrial environment, peatlands, wetlands and so on, going to oceans and atmosphere. So it's that carbon cycle between the earth, the ocean and the atmosphere and it goes round and round. When there's a drought, vegetation dies, carbon goes to atmosphere, you grow more trees, it takes some down. We need absolutely to take carbon out of the atmosphere in that active carbon cycle by maintaining our carbon stores in forests, peatlands, wetlands and growing more. But that is within the active carbon cycle and that's all that's doing is putting carbon back from where it's been lost with deforestation. So it's effectively addressing a legacy issue. Any fossil fuel uh, that you extract is adding, is adding to the atmosphere and that's why you can't offset one with the other. In fact, as the Climate Council has said, we need to have a firewall between thinking about the active carbon cycle and taking up more carbon dioxide in that and fossil fuels. And the answer is no more fossil fuels. I've got it, but I think the rest of us are being dragged kicking and screaming to this knowledge, especially in industries like this where a lot of money is being made and perhaps you don't care about the, the bigger ethical picture of it. I... Um, listeners will remember we talked on the radio to someone from Tasmania called Peg Putt and she was in the middle of bushfires that you've suffered terribly in Tasmania. It was terrible the way she described it. She herself had evacuees staying with her and it was just frightening and horrific the way she explained it. But what she more wanted to tell us was about the United Nations and the threat to forests from loopholes in the way they're thinking about forests at the United Nations level. She said that, you know, um, and I think the Labor Party policy has just come out, something about forests. I didn't quite understand the detail of it. Do you, do you, are you across that, that, like, it should be like, as you said, a fire will protect the, the forests that are there. Don't cut any of them, I would think that's what it means in yeah. simple terms. Yes, so what has happened is in the scramble to say no fossil fuels, people have gone, oh, well, we can make biofuels uh, by using forests and that's renewable. Well, it's not because you're actually removing a carbon store to convert it to a biofuel. That's why we've seen massive loss of forests in Indonesia and uh, Malaysia from conversion of tropical forests to palm oil and that's why I'm very pleased to say that the European Union has now said no we are not going to continue to buy palm oil from Malaysia because it's leading to deforestation and the loss of these tropical forests. In the Tasmanian and Australian context, you know, when we were negotiating the carbon price under the Gillard government, I made sure that we were not going to allow any money from the Clean Energy Finance Corporation 
to be used for effectively putting in forest furnaces. The idea that you would log Tasmania's forests to burn them to generate energy. That is crazy. It is not green energy. It is not renewable. You're releasing all of that carbon from the forest and the soil carbon. And yet that is what we've got now, a policy by both Labor and Liberal that would allow logging of native forests in Australia, turning them into pellets and sending them to Japan and China to burn in um, in furnaces. It's just the next iteration of export wood chipping under the name of green energy when it is not green energy. It's actually robbing the earth of its carbon stores and putting more of that active carbon into the atmosphere. Okay, well that's very clear, listeners. I hope you get it this time. Um, Christine, you just said you work at the international level and you've recently been in Malaysia. Could you describe what you saw there? Yes, it was just fantastic. I was invited to a clean energy collaboration in Sarawak and it was particularly interesting for me because Hydro Tasmania was part of the push to build mega dams in Sarawak some years ago and I took a stand then when I was in the Senate supporting the Indigenous people, particularly the Penan people, who would have been displaced from their villages by these mega hydro dams. The interesting thing is they had no market for these dams. It was just exactly the mentality that had that Hydro Tasmania had had at home, which is build these dams and they will come. You know, that was the notional view. So I went over there to help the um, villagers who are doing fantastic things in electrifying rural areas but doing it with appropriate scale technology. So they're doing it with small scale run of the river hydro and uh, with solar. And one of the fabulous ones, one of the NGOs, um, what they'd done is that they'd started to melt down aluminium cans, which had been wasted, and to actually smelt them into the little turbines, which they were using in the rivers. And the key to it all was educating the villagers as to how these micro-hydro systems actually work to the point where they can repair them and keep them well-maintained. And in fact, some of these systems have now been going for 10 or 12 years, which is really fabulous. So that's rural electrification. But really exciting. Malaysia, since the change of government last year, has has, uh, said it wants to go from what is currently 2% renewable energy to 20% renewable energy by 2030. Now that is huge. Um, And so now they're working out how to do it. And so I had meetings with several of the federal ministers there to talk about one of the key things they need is a green bank, effectively the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. And I explained to them that the huge contribution it had made was not just in the investment but in holding the hand of the private sector investors to give them the confidence that they weren't taking all the risk on their own. And whereas we now know in Australia and uh, Germany and other economies that renewable energy is not a risk, you've still got in Asia a financial sector that's not so confident. That's why a green bank is essential. But it was just fascinating to be able to talk to so many people because... Malaysia could actually reposition itself if it stopped the logging of forests and conversion to palm oil and it said to the rest of the world, we need your help to help us restore our forests and at the same time we need help with capacity building to get to 20% renewables. If that change of position occurred in Malaysia, I'm pretty confident the rest of the world would see it as a great positive and help. Not only because it's the right thing to do in climate, 
but also because of the geopolitics. China has moved in with debt diplomacy in Sri Lanka, in Myanmar, and so we now uh, have got the situation where the rest of the world can see that if you want a bulwark against Chinese debt uh, influencing uh, decisions that are made at the national level, and Cambodia is, of course, in that same position as uh, Sri Lanka and Myanmar. So... I think there are lots of reasons why the rest of the world might now suddenly take a keen interest in Malaysia. Yeah, I love hearing that. I was in Malaysia a few years ago and I went to a conference in Malacca and there were these gigantic Danish men there who were sent giving expertise to the Malacca government on efficiency and they'd transferred all their hospitals into energy efficient hospitals and it was just that transfers of knowledge. And I feel here we're at this industry conference, it's all about making money and... and yeah being good by the climate but I think there's a huge role for Australia not just to export energy but to export expertise and know-how. Absolutely capacity building is essential and I was quite astounded I had hours with four different federal ministers who are desperate to actually know how Australia did it what how the clean energy package worked and the main thing I said to them was look you need a high-level cabinet committee, which is a whole-of-government approach. Otherwise, you're going to have one portfolio, as in forests and natural resources like gas, undermining your renewable effort. So just talking them through how, at a government level, you might do this, um, and then industry expertise... It's just essential, and I just think that market for know-how is really huge if people wanted to tap it. Thank you, Christine Milne, giving your know-how to us and your experience. Thanks. It's really lovely to see you. Lovely to talk to you too. Thank you. If you love listening to Radio EcoShock on 3CR, ring and donate to Radio for Change on 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. While I was at the Smart Energy Conference, I also met uh, Sally Perini, and she had a very small-scale innovation. It was more the sort of thing I would like to hear about, which was a mowing company called the Zero Mow. And she goes around. You'll hear what she does. It's very interesting. It's taking these lawnmowers that are zero um, energy users, and it, it, it could catch on. But it's, I think there's, we don't always have to focus at the big wind farm level. We can look at the local level as well. I'm still at the Smart Energy Conference, listeners, and really there's too much for me to cover here. Maybe you know a lot about electric vehicles already and high-speed rail, but what about a zero-emissions mower? That's more my scale, not that I have a lawn. And I found Sally Perini here. She's director of Zero Mow, and I know that she's a friend of zero, Beyond Zero Emissions, so she's in our territory. Uh, welcome, Sally. Just tell us, what does this non-profit initiative aim to do? Yes, hi Vivian, lovely to meet you. Um, so I'm trying to create awareness of the benefits of uh, battery-powered mowing equipment. So I'm trying to encourage people to change from their highly polluting, noisy and very smelly petrol-powered tools over to cleaner, quieter, zero-emission mowing equipment powered by batteries. And of course you can use renewable energy, 100% renewable energy to charge the batteries. 
mowers are very noisy, and but I think there's a larger scale of them, more like municipal uh, people who have big cricket pitches. Are you aiming at that sort of uh, group of people? Yes, that's right. So um, particularly as um, I'm aiming also at councils who are also big users of um, petrol-powered equipment. So, yes, trying to get those that have large grounds maintenance, um, if they use contractors to do that maintenance, to encourage their contractors to make that switch. Okay, well, it's just one less item in the world that's using petrol, uh, fossil fuels, but you are encouraging people with very... Not, I couldn't quite compute it at first because it's such a commercial atmosphere here. I think, where's the profit? Well, it's not a not-for-profit. But how do you encourage people to try them out? That's right. No, so no profit. I'm not trying to sell anything. So I'll lend them out my own battery-powered equipment um, because one of the biggest obstacles I find is that those who are in the mowing business um, and contractors don't think that the battery-powered equipment is up to the job. So the best way to show them that it is is to let them use the equipment. So I lend it out for free. I will deliver it to them in my fully electric uh, Renault Kangoo ZE van. Uh, I will pick it up from them, so no inconvenience. And, yeah, my hope is once they've used it, they'll see all the benefits and they'll make the switch. How did you get into this? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so I think I started with a, um, uh, an electric car about seven years ago, and it's kind of grown from there. Um, I've got acreage that I live on, so I've been using battery-powered equipment there. Um, and I was going to set up my own zero emission mowing service originally and thought well just me on my own trying to you know I wouldn't convert very many um so wanting to try to convert the entire landscape and mowing sector just a small ambition there Vivian uh, so that's how it started. You sound like quite a campaigner are you a veteran of many campaigns in the uh, climate action that's what our show is all about. Well, as you may know, I've been a long-time supporter of BZE and several organisations. So, yes, long time in this space. And it was just wonderful, as you, today I was saying to you, to hear Christine Milne out there, you know, reminding everybody we face a climate emergency and we just simply haven't got the um, luxury of time. So, yeah. She's a real campaigner. I love the way she spoke. And the whole audience is, seems to be men in shirts and ties, but there's some women there, quite a few women. But it's kind of a homogenous group of people who are all doing this um, renewable energy transition. But she wanted to firm them up to a certain total zero emissions. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, that's right. She was just saying, you know, let's start not talking about, not using that word net let's talk about using the word zero, put that back into, you know, if we're going to be talking about the climate emergency, we need to get to zero. What, what, what message would you like to give to Beyond Zero Emissions listeners? Well, please contact me. That would be the, the best message um, on www.zeromo.com.au. But also, if you know of mowing businesses out there or people that you know who might be using a garden gardener, like a mowing service, please you know, let them know they can get in touch and, and try and encourage them to make the switch over to cleaner, quieter, zero-emission mowing. It's not just uh, Jim's mowing service that I see all around the suburbs, but it's those awful leaf blowers. <laughs> well, exactly, and they're the worst offenders. 
Um, but, you know, there's still probably going to be a role for them um, for certain jobs when you're doing very large grounds maintenance. Yeah. They're going to need them. Um, but, yes, they are they um, a two-stroke leaf blower. Um, as we're looking at my little booklet now, um, can, you know, used for about an hour, can produce an enormous amount of hydrocarbons. So, yes, we need to make the switch, everybody, as fast as possible. So, just to finish, what, what motivates you? Like, I'm, I'm still trying to find out how did you get into... Not everybody is aware of climate change. Those who are aware, a lot of them don't do anything. A lot of them believe you can't do anything. You're taking this quite big initiative, I think. Yeah, well, I think it's exactly like Christine Milne said today, um, that we really do have a climate emergency. And I think a lot of people say they're concerned, but I don't know whether they understand the magnitude of the threat. And I think if you did... <laughs> there'll be a lot more people doing exactly like I'm doing so, and a lot more people perhaps volunteering for BZE yeah, That's right, they take that as a cue <laughs> listeners, but if you've got solar panels on your roof and you're plugging in your EV, why not plug in a, a motor mower as well, and it's called Zero Mo, which is a weird looking word Z-E-R-O-M-O-W Zero Yes, Zero Mo The only the only course of action as far as flying is concerned is greatly to reduce the number of flights we take. And we're talking about a reduction in the region of 90%. And this is very tough. This is very hard for people to contemplate, not least those people who have love miles. Now, love miles is a phrase I came up with in writing this book, which describes the distance between you and the people you love. If you have family in Australia, if you have a friend's wedding to go to in New York, you have love miles with those people, and you feel a moral obligation to redeem those love miles. <laughs> and you're all laughing because I'm sure you've all got them, and you understand what I'm talking about. And here we see two valid moral codes in irreconcilable antagonism. It is wrong not to go to your best friend's wedding in Cape Town. It is also wrong to go there. And in climate change, we see the requirement for a whole new moral code. I'm at the Smart Energy Conference, and there's a very exciting little uh, van in the corner here. It is little. It's a van, for I think, for small businesses, but it's an electric vehicle. And um, I have Dr Charles Kung with us, who is the designer. And he, uh, he was introduced as a great inventor. And they launched his vehicle yesterday with John Hewson and Zali Stegel, all politicians, you know, uh, launching it. And everyone's very excited that people, there'd be a good uptake for this. And I think because it's a small, smallish van, it probably would appeal to a lot of um, businesses. Um, he also is interested in the planning of high-speed rail systems, which he was involved in in Taiwan. So, welcome, Charles. And could you tell us what is so special, first of all, about the van? Okay. Uh, your name is Vivian, right? Yes. Uh, Vivian, this, this, uh, the difference of our van from others is uh, basically we are uh, constructing the vehicle with uh, composite material. And which is different from a regular body, which is made out of a stamped sheet metals. And uh, this makes the whole uh, design, engineering, and also manufacturing system different from what has been in the, with the uh, automotive industry. Uh, in principle, it will greatly 
simplify the process and simplify the development. Uh, I mean, product development and also the initial investment. So uh, this will, this could bring um, another scenario of uh, manufacturing for automotive industry. Well, at the moment, the uh, man who introduced you yesterday said that it arrived in Australia in six packs, flat packs, and was assembled here. Is that the way it would continue? Well, it really depends on the quantity. If we uh, if we continue to do this, and when the demand is growing, and we could uh, we could do a lot more uh, and, you know, with a local factory. That means we can manufacture or source parts from local factories instead of importing all, all of them. Uh, for for very few number of it, uh, in the beginning, we probably will have to import a lot right now. Okay. It's a, a small van. It looks to me a sort of van that a postal, postal man would use. You know, what, what sort of market are you looking at? We are first looking at uh, delivery because our concept is uh, to design and uh, design and engineering for urban use because we believe it's our belief which is very different from Tesla uh, we believe pure battery driven car should be uh, best for the for urban use not for long range drive yes. and therefore you don't need to carry so so much battery on board all the time where where you actually use only a very small part of it yeah. daily. Yeah. Uh, therefore, our, our uh, target is to design and develop uh, vehicles for urban use. Well, now I'd like, what I'm interested in is high-speed rail. The group that I'm with, Beyond Zero Emissions, we published a report on the feasibility of high-speed rail in Australia, and we had lots of people interested in it, but it still hasn't happened. You have the experience from Taiwan, which is a smaller place, and I imagine a population much more clustered around where the rail would go. Can you tell us the, um, you know, the interesting aspect of that, how you developed that and how it how it could be um, applied here. Okay, uh, when I was planning on the high speed system as a chief engineer of uh, A&M, uh, ENM system, uh, we have been collecting information from all over the world. And uh, Australia was one of the uh, uh, major uh, locations that can be, uh, that high speed rail system can be applied. And the key word for high-speed rail is, uh, uh, we, we say it is corridor. If you have a population distributed around a corridor, then you will be more qualified to install a high-speed rail system because uh, it is uh, rather expensive to build a railway, a high-speed railway, and uh, rolling stocks are uh, rather expensive. Therefore, you want best utilization. Therefore, you need a population. You need a intensity, intensive uh, traffic in order to justify the investment. Mm. Therefore, uh, in Australia, you know, from what I understood, it would be the population would be from Brisbane to Sydney and then Melbourne. Uh, further to the south, probably don't have so much population. So this corridor can be one of the uh, uh, one of the corridors can be qualified for high-speed system in the world. 
That's right. Well, we found in our research that I think about 60% of the Australian population lives within very drivable distance, say 100 kilometres from either side of that corridor, and the rest of the population is in Western Australia and South Australia and Tasmania. But, you know, 60% of our population is along that corridor. So how, when you look at our map, what, what ideas come to you, design ideas? Yeah, uh, if, we, if I'm thinking about high-speed road system in Australia, I would think uh, to make it more economical, of course you choose the corridor with the most population. And then you probably have to uh, think about how to economize or reduce the cost of such a high speed along, along a corridor not so uh, much populated as others, yes. like what we have in Taiwan. Yeah. We, within a short distance, like 400 kilometers, we have um, 80% of population. Taiwan has uh, more or less the same population as Australia. But you are distributed along a very long distance, like 2,000 kilometers. We have only 400. Uh, So I think the key point, if you can design a system, for example, a single, single line, not two lines, a single line, but you have... Uh, uh, in, in some of the uh, station in between, you have the uh, uh, trains uh, uh, overlapped, but then the rest of the, uh, the land is covered by single line. Then you already reduce the cost by half. Yeah. And secondly, uh, you can reduce the number of rolling stock. Therefore, the the uh, uh, the number of train you you run per day. Uh, can be limited to like uh, every two hours a train. Then you have uh, you can start with the least number of rolling stock. Yeah. That also reduces cost. Yeah. There's one advantage in Australia to have uh, high speed rail is the land acquisition. You have obviously a large piece of land that can be controlled by the government. And in Taiwan, we spend more than half of the budget just to acquire the land. Oh. And but in Australia, I would think in this aspect it'll be much much easier to 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 design a route that is uh, outside the urban area, but not too far from the center. You can have uh, connections from the center to the uh, high speed rail station, yeah. and and the high speed rail station itself can gradually can be developed into another urban center too. But that's in the you know, in in a, in, a, in a time to come. So I think uh, there must be a way that you can reduce the scale of high-speed rail and make it more economical for less populated corridor. Yes. Well, I travel back and forth from Sydney to Melbourne about every two months, and there's only one service each each way, one at night and one in the morning. And uh, between Sydney and Melbourne, which are big populations, it's a huge air corridor. We have a huge number of flights there compared, you know, comparative to lots of uh, places in the world. It's kind of world standard flights going back and forth. And I think that's a terrible carbon footprint. I'd love to see high-speed rail, but I still don't understand why you would have only one track because you'd have to have services coming each way. Yeah. Uh, One track is to simply to reduce the cost by half. Because then, then you have have you can have uh, 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 two coming from two directions, and have in one of the middle uh, middle section you have a 
uh, how do you say it? It's uh, uh, a detour. Yeah, I can detour and yeah. do, uh, and after this exchange, you can go on with the one track. Oh, I see. Yeah. Because you have a double track in parallel, and obviously you have more cost. Okay, so that's that's the one way to reduce the cost. To have only in a small junction, you have two two tracks. Well, I'm very excited. I ask everyone I can about this because I think this would reduce our air flying carbon emissions, and it would be very lovely to decentralise the big cities, which are getting too. Top heavy, and it would be lovely to put people out so that they could work in the cities, but live in those、uh, more rural places. But quick, quick what travel. I can, what I can think is, maybe the first obstacles would be those、uh, airline companies. Yes, that's right. <laughs> They would not, not like to see their、uh, their passengers are reduced. Putting in new airports in both cities, that both of those cities. Well, thank you very much. Is there anything else you'd like to say、um, along the lines of climate action through engineering? Well,、uh, Australia to me is a is a great and beautiful country. I I think it's a dreamland for for human beings on, on this earth. It's the ideal place <laughs> to live.、Uh, I personally would like to see this. Uh, Uh, place keep keep develop and become more and more、uh, advanced in developing human culture.、Uh, we need such a place to to give a human being more dreams.、Mm-hmm. What a lovely way to end! Thank you very much. So that was Dr. Charles、uh, Kung, and he's、uh, an engineer, an expert in high speed rail, and now he's launching a, a van here that might take off. Thank you very much. Thank you, Vivian. Hell, I'm worried about climate change. Are we in trouble? Don't be glum, Dave. Right now, solar, wind power, hydropower, and carbon sequestration technologies are being developed throughout laboratories all over the world. I need more information, Hal. I can't give that to you, Dave. Tune in to BZE Technology on Fridays, 8:30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. When? Fridays, eight thirty to nine a.m. on Three CR. So after the Smart Energy Conference in Sydney, I turned up in Melbourne, and one of the meetings I went to in Kuyong just before the election, I was very interested to listen to Oliver Yates. He had also been speaking at the Smart Energy Conference, but the audio I captured wasn't really good enough quality. So I got closer to him and、um, recorded his talk. At Kuyong, which was very interesting about, especially on the subject of gas and how we must not keep subsidising the kinds of fuel we don't want, fossil fuels, and how we even he doesn't seem seem to think we need to f- subsidise renewable energy, but it'll be full steam ahead if we have a plan. So Oliver Yates. Thank you. Well, look, the question really went to: Is do we need to go and frack the hell out of the Northern Territory and continue on this fossil fuel binge that we've got? And the answer is no. The government should not be providing the 1.4 billion dollar subsidy to enable us to tap that resource. The only reason why we have a gas quote shortage is because the private sector overbuilt the vacuum cleaner in Gladstone. So the private sector made made a commercial decision. 
and I was you know, all involved in those type of commercial decisions. We know what happened in the banking market. They went into there and they built the world's biggest vacuum cleaners in Gladstone without a gas supply and said they were going to export more gas than currently was available in Australia. They took a view that they were going to be able to frack the hell out of the country and what happened is the farmers prevented them. So what they did is they just sucked all the domestic gas. And what they said at the time is don't worry bankers because what we're going to do is we're going to drive up the gas price so high the manufacturing industry will scream until blood comes out of the government's ears and they'll allow us to frack the place. So don't worry about it, we'll get the gas, eventually. Well, that was a bad commercial decision. When, when will this government call the commercial decision that those guys made bad and tell them there'll be domestic, domestic gas reservation systems and you'll lose? We also need to get real here with the climate change debate. We actually need to stop opening new fossil fuel resources. We have to. Every time we do this... We when you open it, it will be used. It's a bit like a bottle of wine. When you open it, it'll be drunk, okay? Do not open it. Do not go to the cellar. Leave it where it is, because that's what we must do at this stage. This is a real crisis situation. We have to stop it. We have to stop our own addiction. We are addicted to using fossil fuels. We don't need to be. We don't need to subsidise renewables. And God damn it, we certainly shouldn't be subsidising more fossil fuels. Thank you. And lastly, listeners, this is marvellous interview also about gas, but it's from a health perspective. I met Professor Haswell, uh, Melissa Haswell, up at Gloucester. I couldn't include this um, interview in my Gloucester program, but I really want you to hear it because she has studied in great detail the local effects on the Aboriginal people and the local other local people in this remote area called Beetaloo Basin if fracking of gas goes ahead and if that gas is piped out to the world, the climate effects will be very bad for their health and all of our health. So, Professor Melissa Haswell. Welcome, listeners, to the Beyond Zero Emission Show. I'm still at Gloucester and I've found one of the people I've interviewed many years ago. You might remember Professor Melissa Haswell. She's a member of the Doctors for the Environment group. She's also professor in the School of Public Health and Social Work at QUT. So welcome, Melissa. Thank you very much, Vivian. And I'd like to ask you a lot of things, but mostly tonight, let's focus on coal seam gas. And you've just been to Poland before Christmas to the um, COP24, and I think you created your publication just before that. Could you just tell us what it's about? The health implications, we're talking about coal seam gas and the health implications for people. Well, Vivian, we we still don't know very much about coal seam gas and health because most of the research that's been done has been done in the United States, and that has been looking at shale gas mining. Increasingly, the reason why we know a lot about shale gas mining is because all across the United States, a number of researchers, epidemiologists, mm. um, environmental health researchers have looked at what's been happening over there in terms of health impacts of shale gas mining. But there are lots of similarities between coal seam gas mining and shale gas mining, but there are also differences. So the reason why, particularly for Australia, the um, shale gas mining is important is because if you go further west beyond Queensland and New South Wales, um, we find that um, moratoriums have been lifted in the Northern Territory and Western Australia. 
Um, we still have a, a, a moratorium on, in some parts of South Australia, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the South. Yep. Um, we have a ban in Victoria <laughs> of both conventional and unconventional gas. We have New South Wales, which is on the cusp of potentially expanding their coal seam gas mm-hmm. mining. Um, and we have Queensland that's just continuing and continuing. So. Well, you're here to frighten us. I don't think you frightened the Northern Territory quite enough because they lifted their moratorium, which is annoying and terrible because I was in Adelaide before Christmas at the Labor Party conference and some of those people from Beetaloo Basin, Aboriginal people living in Veria, they explained how remote their communities were and how few people live there. It's not Bentley, it's not East Coast Australia where you can get 3,000 people mobilised. They're living in very remote places. And I feel that my Melbourne audience and the podcast audience should know about it. So what's on the cards for them if they get this massive industrial expansion, piping gas out of there? Just locally, what's the health impact for them? Yeah. So locally over in the United States, um, there is now over 1,500 papers, publications on the environmental health and direct health Mm. uh, impacts associated with living near uh, shale gas wells. And that's the kind of mining they're talking about for the Northern Territory that goes deep, deep in the earth. Um, So there's a number of papers now that have started to characterize the chemicals, not just the chemicals used in fracking, which Mm. is what most of the Mm. focus is on, but actually... um, the chemicals that are in the wastewater, which is enormous amount quantities of water that come up through the operations. And that's a mixing of the added chemicals together with chemicals that are, have been sitting on mm. around in the shale uh, yeah. for millions of years. Yeah. So that cocktail can include he- heavy metals, uh, volatile organic compounds, PAHs, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, um, uh, potentially radioactive components, um, as well as what we call endocrine disrupting chemicals or chemicals that can disrupt um, the communication in Mm. our bodies, um, uh, development, etc., but I know there's a problem that they can't really dispose of the wastewater. Sometimes it tips over if there's flooding. I think that's happened, hasn't it? But, but people aren't going to be drinking that water. How could it affect your health if you lived there? Well, in the Northern Territory, there's already difficulties in terms of water supplies. Um, and the cleaner the water is from where you take it from, the less treatment that's required. So it it makes sense to keep our environment as free of chemicals, Mm. whether it's our soils um, or or the waters, so that we can be more sure that the water is actually safe to drink at the end point. Um, And when we look in the United States, the EPA a couple of years ago did a a very um, extensive study across the country um, and they certainly found instances of spillages of every sort of way that water from waste can yeah. get into the environment. Um, and also we found that reinjection is sometimes related to seismic activity, which also isn't yeah. something. So there really isn't a safe way of disposing 
um, of wastewater, full, fully safe way. Yeah. I'll just play devil's advocate here. Pretend I'm a company owner of a Colsim gas drilling company. I'm very yeah. keen to get the big profits out of it. I would reassure you that I can control all of that. I'll keep all of that water safe and I won't release anything into the atmosphere. And on the other side, there's a person there who's living in a remote community who can't get information about that. How is that? How are they going to be protected? Uh, you know, what are they? What is likely to happen to them? What illnesses are they likely to get that would counteract my argument as saying yeah. nothing will happen to you? The biggest one, I think, of major concern, especially for Aboriginal communities, but for every community, um, is there appears to be a higher frequency of low birth weight. Babies born lighter than compared to mothers living further out, um, birth complications, and also, well, just to say that in Aboriginal communities, there's already challenges yeah. around low birth weight, and mm. it's been one of the most difficult things in terms of the gap mm. to close because there's so many things that um, um, contribute to low birth weight. Then another one on top of all the other um, is um, I think we need to look at that very, very carefully, that vulnerability. Um, Also, complications from asthma, so more needing to go to the doctor and get a changed prescription, more emergency department visits, and more actually hospitalizations from asthma. And Aboriginal uh, children do have a higher rate of asthma already. Yeah. So introducing something that could potentially um, increase that's very concerning. Um, there's now hospitalization studies which have shown people living closer to wells have higher rates of cardiovascular hospitalizations in some areas, higher respiratory illnesses, skin conditions. Um, one recently came out regarding kidney conditions, oh. yeah, uh, urinary and kidney mm. conditions. So all of those, every mm. single one of those, ha- is already uh, Aboriginal people have a higher burden from those things. Mm. Then we can look at traffic accidents. And the one place in um, Australia where traffic accident rates stand out is the Northern Territory. So there's a very high... Um, Made large mm. trucks associated with um, the gas industry moving through the roads. Mm. Um, so again, we're adding a, an, a, an industry that does already yeah. uh, has been associated with higher accidents. Yeah. Um, on top of that, well, so. you know, I know it, there's a category called psychosocial stress. You know, in one of your publications, you say that, and I know the Queensland people. I've read many testimonies from Queensland people can't stand all the bright lights at night, can't stand all this huge industrial in activity in a place that was previously rural. Plus, they've got no control over it, and families are fractured and divided about it. Could you talk a little bit about that side? You know, the social impact. I mean, this is bit large last ditch I think we're broadcasting about this but the the moratorium has been lifted that industry is going ahead but what can you say about the totally criminal <laughs> kind of impact it could have on communities yep so there has been the least studies about psychosocial impacts in the United States but it's actually an area where Australia has particularly focused and brought um, quite a lot of understanding. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show at Radio 3CR. Tonight we heard from John Grimes at the Smart Energy Conference. 
He was speaking to an energy audience, but he pulled no punches. We folks, Australia is a global pariah when it comes to climate change action. Then we heard from Christine Milne, who told us about her work in Malaysia. Really exciting. Malaysia, since the change of government last year, has, has uh, said it wants to go from what is currently 2% renewable energy to 20% renewable energy by 2030. Now, that is huge. Um, and so now they're working out how to do it. And so I had meetings with several of the federal ministers there to talk about one of the key things they need is a green bank, effectively the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. So there is the Green Climate Fund in Korea, which is designed by the UN to be the lead agency for adaptation funding. I've been there many times attending their board meetings. It is clear from my observations at those board meetings as that agency has significant management and governance issues. But again, the Australian government has done what it's always done recently, and it's slashed its funding commitment to the Green Climate Fund in Korea. Um, so um, it is pivotal an organisation for adaptation, the Green Climate Fund. Um, it is there for the purposes of ensuring that we fairly deal with Paris, the Paris commitments and we share the burdens now across the nations where wealthy nations actually assist developing nations meet the cost of climate change and actually fund what's necessary. Um, the spending relates to damages caused by emissions um, uh, which we developed nations have benefited from. Now that is not something we should be sacrificing our aid budget for. That is a different cause and effect. Then about the zero mow lawnmower from Sally Perini who is doing this as a non-profit organisation. but She's organised herself. We heard about an electric van which was launched at the conference and it comes in flat packs from Taiwan and we spoke to the inventor Dr Charles Kung. Then Oliver Yates who was at that conference but then I didn't record him there. This is from a different conference. He gave us the shocking story of gas and just how dangerous and unnecessary it is for us to continue exploring for gas in Australia and exporting it. But the most important argument against gas was given by Professor Melissa Haswell, who has published on this matter, and she showed us just how medic many medical studies there are now from the US that indicate it's very unhealthy to be living anywhere near gas fracking and how our own people from the Beetaloo Basin will be very dangerously impacted by the fracking industry if it gets going in their region of the Northern Territory. It'll be hugely damaging for the rest of us as the health of the climate will suffer from all that exported gas. I will leave you with Oliver Yates, who was the first, um, the first head of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, and he puts it in very clear words, the way forward. So listen to Oliver Yates, and thank you very much for listening to us. We also need to get real here with the climate change debate. We actually need to stop opening new fossil fuel resources. We have to. Every time we do this, when you open it, it will be used. It's a bit like a bottle of wine. When you open it, it'll be drunk, okay? Do not open it. Do not go to the cellar. Leave it where it is, because that's what we must do at this stage. This is a real crisis situation. We have to stop it. We have to stop our own addiction. We are addicted to using fossil fuels, we don't need to be. We don't need to subsidise renewables. And God damn it, we certainly shouldn't be subsidising more fossil fuels.
For production tonight, thank you to Michaela and Andy, who've put the show to air. And my name is Vivian Langford. We represent Beyond Zero Emissions, which is a research and educational organisation providing roadmaps for Australia to face the climate challenge. <clears throat> you can check out Beyond Zero Emissions' website for all the reports they've published so far, and you can see it's absolutely cutting edge. Uh, we started off with the renewable energy sector, then we moved on to transport, buildings, agriculture, and now we're getting much more into industry and how Australia can even be an exporter of, of um, zero-carbon fuels. It's very interesting work. It's not a campaigning organisation, but this radio show is the sort of outreach. We try to reach out to the people who are putting these things into action. Economists, thinkers, writers, psychologists, farmers... All the people that, you know, are making it happen. Lots of the children on the children's strike have said, oh, if nobody's doing anything, but please, if you listen to the archive here, you will see that under the radar, a lot of people are doing something and it's a race against time. So thank you for listening. Good night and good luck. listening to Radio EcoShock on 3CR, ring and donate to Radio for Change on 039419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au.